everyone. Welcome to From Nord to Nothing, Ontological Oxymorons. I'm your host, Joel Bouchard, a doctoral student in psychology, and with me is Mr. Norman Gayford, professor of English and philosophy. Many times throughout history, philosophers have taken an abstract or theoretical approach to examining the unanswerable problems facing humanity. However, there are some problems that must be seated within the context of society, and there are some philosophers that have no problem doing so in a personally relevant way. Enter the existentialist writer, Simone de Beauvoir. All right, did I get it right? You did. Okay. <laughs> we'll see if I can continue to get it right throughout the episode. Well, we could just do the, the typical male thing, which I don't want to do, and say, well, we don't talk about Jean-Paul. We talk about Sartre, but we talk about Simone. We could, No, let's not do that. <laughs> we'll just say she. We know who we're talking about. Right, all right. The listeners heard it once. That's enough. <laughs> you, you can keep reminding them throughout the episode. I'll, I'll, try, to, I'll try to just use pronouns. <laughs> so, yeah, we... Um, Continuing our existential philosopher um, series here, we're moving on to uh, Du Beauvoir. Um, who who was she? She was a philosopher who lived from 1908 to 1986. She became a novelist in the 1940s. She was very interested in writing. She very very interested in teaching. She grew up in a with a an interesting mix of, of parentage, a Catholic school upbringing, but at age 14 declared herself an atheist and stayed that way the rest of her days. She uh, wanted and did uh, study uh, to study history, literature, uh, literature and philosophy. So I feel a, a commonality, although I would never be in her scope. And as it turns out, at age 21, she became the youngest sanctioned teacher of philosophy in France in her day. There's a rigorous battery of tests one must go through at school and university, and and she did. And she took the one of the main exams and was only slightly surpassed by someone named... Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, but he had taken the exam more than once, and this was her first time, so she came in second. So I, I, I say all those things first because this was a remarkable philosopher who did not just parrot at all Sartre. She found his, his ideas fascinating. They debated. She went uh, her own very independent ways, but because they – were intimate with each other because they lived together, well, in the sense of a relationship over a large number of decades, people, because of patriarchal notions, people subsume her with Sartre. Which really shouldn't happen. And part, partly what happened is that she herself would talk about him in not superior terms, but, but acknowledge his influence on her. And so people say, ah, she's, she's just a disciple of Sartre. No such thing. Yeah. So that's a, that's a great overview. And we're going to get into all of the, the details of that as, as we go along. Um, so. How did her mother and her father influence her thinking? Because like you alluded to, they, there, she had a Catholic upbringing, um, but it probably wasn't wasn't strictly Catholic from the beginning, from the get go. Her mother well, and her father were sort of different, right? Yeah, more more from her mother's viewpoint than her father, and, and there was some some wealth in in both of the families. But as situations, I don't want to micromanage the story, but as situations turned out, the, the father really supported and encouraged. With, with extreme prejudice sometimes, uh, her writing and reading at, a, at an early age wanted her to be able to extend herself and be a fully intellectual human being. And he got what he wanted, and he wasn't quite as <laughs> happy with that as he thought because, because she was writing and she was teaching and somehow – that was not what he'd really hoped for her. 
So she was getting, uh, yeah, I, not to put too fine a point on it, but I think she was getting mixed messages. Yeah. Um, and and it, it's sort of a, a wild thing to, to think of, right? But feminism, for all intents and purposes, didn't exist when she was younger. I mean, it, it, right? it, it exists. Well, it existed, but not in the terms that, that, People loosely use the term now. It certainly existed with with uh, writers in, in France and and England and the states. The women, the women's suffrage was going uh, ongoing from the uh, late nineteenth century, even some places mid nineteenth century, all the way uh, well into the the twentieth. So, uh, women's votes, women's rights, in that sense, a vindication of the rights of women, Mary. Uh, Shelley, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, Wollstonecraft. So there, there, it certainly was out there, but, but she took it one step further. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that's, that's kind of the point, right? Is that it's almost as if you're right. The suffrage movement was around, but it's almost as if that was a movement towards, um, a lawful equality among women, but there still was lacking, um, the philosophical yeah yeah or you know uh, on a personal level sort of I, I think the point that highlights it the best is that um like you alluded to you had her father who's very supportive of her um very happy to to have her read and do these things and you know you think okay well that's a good father but his his highest compliment of her was she thinks like a man yes right? yes you know? yeah and so that sort of highlights it right because um you know even though, yeah, women at the time were fighting for the right to vote and to have um, equal footing with men on a on a political level, on a personal level, or on a relational level, that wasn't really being thought of much before her. Was well, that's kind of what I was getting at with yeah, the feminist? Yeah, part. yeah, okay, yeah. And and just side note, I have to, with all due self revealing, uh, one of the hardest things in the world. It seems to me as a father is to get out of the way as a father <laughs> when when your when your uh, children have gr- grown and and they are shaped even early age and they become fascinating marvelous adults and you have to remind yourself to back off <laughs> right and let things go where they go and be supportive and and realize that you're going to trip all over yourself because of how you were raised and and, and the, the the social historical context in which you were raised which doesn't justify anything but it just means you're going to become so self-aware at some point that you're going to trip well i, I he i think was in he was indoctrinated in his time and so yeah he said those things <laughs> and uh, and her mother remained a staunch Catholic, and they couldn't provide her a dowry, which was a thing, you know, for a long time. And so, but she never got married. She and she and Sarge, when when they encountered each other, he wanted to meet her after the, that test, <laughs> and and he introduced her to his uh, crowd of uh, pretty amazing names of philosophers. You know, there are times and periods of, of time when just clusters of people. Just come together, you know, with Einstein and his crew. The, the, in World War II, particularly, this was happening. The Harlem Renaissance, which just you, suddenly all of these minds and and hearts are feeding off of each other's energy and growing ideas. And and she was that was that was part for her. But they they never married. They had they were uh, at times uh, physically intimate. They were romantic, but they they left the door open for. Each to pursue their own relationships. They never did live in the same house, at least not for any length of time, and uh, thought the world of each other all the way through their days. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was kind of an interesting dynamic between them. So, um, let's let's sort of get into that some because um, although as you sort of were talking about at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of emphasis placed on perhaps the wrong parts of. Uh, de Beauvoir's life instead of her philosophy, but it is an important part of the conversation. Um, so let's give the listeners some background on, on who she was and, and how that affected her context um, within the time. All right. So, and, and you can add all the things that you've, you've picked up too with us to fully flesh this out. Um, 
so she she became a teacher of philosophy. She was very interested, very fascinating writing about of using literature to teach philosophy. Uh, much later, one of the most interesting, currently still practicing uh, philosophers is uh, Martha Nussbaum. And in one of her books pursues that same idea, teaching philosophy through the, the, the literary. So I, I find that fascinating about her. Uh, she she was interested very much in 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 the idea of the, her her one of her most notable books was called The Second Sex, and in it that's where she lays out the f- feminist ideas that we've been alluding to, and we'll talk about more. Where a man is man, and given a given uh, uh, endless leeway because being man a woman is viewed as the other and therefore is always uh in some ways uh, objectified and uh subjectified to the to the degree that uh cannot participate in equal ways in the the minds of many and she was really challenging that which put a lot of people off <laughs> and also which spoke to a whole lot of people it influenced an entire generation and that and that that book came out around 1949, I believe. Um, her first novel came out in 1943, the same year that starts being in nothingness <laughs> came out, and they were talking to each other, right? So they got a novelization of something that's not not a copy of him going somewhere else. Uh, she, she she was her she was much more interested in ethical existentialism, and so that took her uh, a different direction than Sartre. I mean, we talked last week about how he was involved in social causes, but but it, but it often was thinking about what am I now, right? And how do I, how am I uh, in this space? Hers is I cannot be free in and of myself until my interactions with others, and so she was very much interested in the oppression of women uh, for decades and and a, a social oppression more generally and was very active in those things in the 70s particularly yeah so you know with our our little um series that we're doing you can kind of see um existentially you know all of these philosophers are looking at at a person as an individual but you had kierkegaard who was who was seeing it within the context of of christianity and having um, God as this as this other figure, you had Sartre who was in um, looking at a sort of in the from the absurd, and then now you have De Beauvoir who was looking at the other as being male and interactions in that sort of uh, thing. Yeah, yeah, the, 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 saying always that males will always see the female as other, but but, but it doesn't matter whether women see men as other or not because men don't care. So. <laughs> That's where she was operating from. Yeah, a real good example of that that she brought up that you can sort of um, identify colloquially if you if you think about it, right? Is um, she says that men men thinking of women as others sort of manifested by them trivializing their problems, right? For, so for men, it's always easy to say, "Well, I don't understand women. Women are this mysterious thing, and yeah. you know, I just you know, there's so much. There's men so are much from different. Mars. Women are from Venus. Yeah, 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 yeah right." But you don't really, you know, there's, there's on the reverse side, you know, do women ever think of men as being mysterious or, you know, these other creatures? No. So does that distinction really exist or is it just a sort of lack of um, thought or intent on the male part living within a patriarchal society to consider um, the feelings and needs of the, of of what they consider a subclass? And that's what she was yeah, she was she was pushing at that. She was uh, questioning that very thoroughly, and and also questioning the the notion that one has to love uh, all the different definitions of love, uh, the opposite. Uh, so she had she had relationships with women. She had relationships with other men. It, it, it's that those things are too limiting she was saying so it, even though that's an idea that goes back to the greeks it's still and, and before it's human uh she was stirring that uh idea and and braiding it with things hmm. um, and 
Well, look, she in, in uh, this uh, one of the many things she wrote. I, I love, I just love her writing. I am too intelligent, too demanding, and too resourceful for anyone to be able to take charge of me entirely. No one knows me or loves me completely. I have only myself. Hmm. Okay, and I am awfully greedy. I want this is both de Beauvoir. I want everything from life. I want to be a woman and to be a man, to have many friends and to have loneliness, to work much and write good books, to travel and enjoy myself, to be selfish and to be unselfish. You see, it is difficult to get all which I want. And then when I do not succeed, I get mad with anger. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to getting mad with something else, but it's right. <laughs> <laughs> I like your sense of humor. Yeah, yeah. So it was funny. Um, you know, she was she was perhaps the first one of the first to uh, formally examine like a, a gender sex distinction. Yes. And so yes. she had some big insights into that. Um, do you want to cover them briefly? Yeah. You start and I'll pick up with, I want to see where you want to go with this. Well, the one, the thing that I was going to talk about, um, the thing that I was going to bring up, mm-hmm. which I thought fascinating was I found, um, like recently, you know, thinking about personalities, right? We've talked about this before about what was your person, you know, are you the same person over time? You're the ship of Theseus, right? Or am I changing and all that stuff? Well, it's funny. Like I've, I've noticed that my favorite colors, which having favorite colors in itself is fascinating. And someday I want to talk about the, just that on a, on a podcast, but I've noticed my, the colors that I prefer have, have been um, changing over time and I'm starting to prefer pastel colors. And I had this sense of almost embarrassment about it. I was, and I was like, why, really? okay. why, why do I feel that way? And then I started looking it up and, and found that, you know, up until, um, you know, recently, the color pink was actually a color for baby boys. And yes. then marketing and, and, you know, advertising yep. within the United States decided that the blue was going to be a boy color and pink was going to be a girl color. Yep. And that sort of shaped perceptions over time. So, you know, when you're looking at, so, you know, up until her point in time, in, in many ways, um, sex and gender were always, were aligned in, in the public side. And she sort of is the one that broached this topic saying, okay, well, you can have an identifiable sex, but your gender may not be a set mm-hmm. thing. One is not born, but becomes a woman. That was that was the the ignition point that 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 idea that she put in this the, the second sex, bam. Yeah, that's <laughs> that's like her propellant accelerant on a <laughs> what? Right, that's, that's one of those things where you hear it, and then yeah, it, it sort of blows blows your mind. Even even in the day that we live in, a mm-hmm. little bit, you know, thinking, oh, okay, yeah. you know, because Sartre had sort of talked about this right with the essence before existence sort of thing, right? He said, you know, oh, you know, there is no essence of being human. You you exist and then you 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 pick up things along the way. Mm-hmm. And she was saying the same thing on on a gender level. Like, right? She's saying women don't have womanly characteristics because they're born in the female sex, but women have womanly characteristics because they're socialized into having right. Those the characteristics that men expect women to be. You know, I, there, there is, and I'm going to do a pop cultural reference again because I just finished this series I've been enjoying, uh, uh, called Penny Dreadful. Well, Penny Dreadfuls were just these r- ridiculously melodramatic, uh, cheap pulp paper printed books, uh, early in the, in the 20th century and, and late 19th. And, but this is a three season series, uh, in which you have uh, Dr. Frankenstein, you have the creature, played in ways you would never uh, expect. You have Dorian Gray, <laughs> Dracula, and, uh, and all of these people encountering each other. And and the question keeps coming up in all the, the mishmash, but the, the question keeps coming up. What is it that makes a monster? What are our and, and And part of the theme is, uh, in, in the Frankensteinian sense, it goes back to, to the books and the book itself, which is is uh, I, if I create you, am I in charge of you? If I create you, do I determine what it is you're to be? And in, the, in, the, in this particular show, uh, a female that he has created, he wants to make her gentle and passive, and she 
and and she exhorts him and excoriates him, saying, oh, you would have me be the ideal woman for you and thus erase what I am myself. And, and, and once again, pop culture, which is what many people experience, mm-hmm. lands right on these deep ideas and, and, and offers the possibility of conversation. So, yes, gender, uh, this, people, it just makes some people mad. Gender is created. Uh, it, she's, and then, and, and then it's relationship to sexuality. In, in itself, she said, homosexuality is as limiting as heterosexuality. The ideal should be capable, should, should be to be capable of loving a woman or a man, either a human being, without feeling fear, restraint, or obligation. So she was pushing really hard for, for a, a, a viewpoint that's, that shouldn't, I, I, I can see no reason for it to be so frightening to people, but is still, unfortunately. Ask gender fluid folks right now. Oh, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. The fact that in the 21st century, me as, as just a cisgender, heterosexual male finds myself embarrassed that I like pastel colors mm-hmm. tells you how deeply ingrained this idea of gender and, 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 and you, and you, and you think about it, you raise it to the surface. You come to think about it. You say, what, what was that? Right. Whenever I, I've, a few times I've drove through McDonald's over the years, whenever they would, they'd ask, and I'd ask for a happy meal just for, just for kicks. Uh, do you want a boy toy or a girl toy? And I'll say, what's the difference? And that, of course, uh, if there was a line of people behind me, I wouldn't carry it on too far. But (laughs) I'd say, you choose. (laughs) And I come up and they heard my voice. And so they give me a boy toy. (laughs) Even though I'm a man of age and I like, okay, because they don't know what to do with it because people don't necessarily give themselves the time or have the time in in the kind of society in which we live don't find the way to the time to explore it. I, I, I will not go to my lowest self and bash people all the time. I, like anyone else, have done that way too much uh, in our very strange time. But, but really, it, 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 uh, there's a, you need time, a meditative space, time to reflect. Time to slow down and say, what is it that I'm saying? What is it that I'm doing? Otherwise, you just become, and this goes back to what we talked about with Sartre, the inauthentic. The inauthentic person just does what everybody else tells them to do because that's why it was, how it's always been done, and therefore you do it. Mm-hmm. Without, authenticity requires a great deal of, of labor and work, and there are a lot of people who are tired and afraid. And that doesn't justify it, but I think it, it explains some of what we see. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, um, you know, it's funny. You can see it in a lot of different ways. I remember when I was in the army, they opened up, um, special forces recruitment to, to females. Hmm. And there was a big backlash against that. Um, because you know, well, they're never going to be able to, to handle this, this sort of thing. (laughs) And you can see how that is like, that's, that's not a good excuse. Right. And so they opened it up and, are there less female special forces soldiers than male? Obviously, um, you know, females in general don't join the army at a very high rate. There are some physical differences between men and women, but the, without changing the standards, mm-hmm. women were able to achieve the, yeah. the standard of, of a, sol- of a special. And, and that first thing you just said, there's a, there's a, a weight of a planet behind that. You know, the, the women don't generally, well, why don't women generally think about going into the army as much as men? All we have to do is look at all of the gender building that has happened about war, uh, except that we have all these examples in history <laughs> that we we choose to ignore, where women have been marvelous warriors. <laughs> right, and and there was they just discovered uh, they just discovered um a chieftain recently that they think might've been a transgender person. Mm -hmm. Um, And it goes the other way too, right? Um, You know, 
I mean, it's very prevalent now to have male nurses, but that used to be a gendered thing. Or, I, you know, if you had a male home decorator, right? Many men would be afraid to get into that profession because of the gendered stereotypes of it. Yes, but the would. fact that yes, men are home decorators and the fact that women are special forces soldiers, that sort of tells you that gender is just a constructed thing. It because does. if it if it was set, it would literally not be possible for one to do the other. The, the, <laughs> the proof is in the pudding, as my grandmother <laughs> right. would have said, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, but it is still, I mean, think about people's language. So much of philosophy is about, and we've talked about this, and we'll, we will again, the, the construction of a reality with language. We construct what it is we want to see with the language that we use. So you, you'll hear men or women talking about, well, I had a woman doctor. And if you stop and say, what? I did this with my dad once because we're doing a lot of medical right now. <laughs> well, what, well, you had a doctor. Why was it necessary to add woman? Well, I haven't had many uh, doctors who were women. Okay. So I had a doctor. She happened to be a woman. But when you say I had a woman doctor, somehow it implies that that's a different doctoring, a different, uh, maybe even an implication of a different level of expertise or something. It's just, that, but again, people say it without thinking through what it is they're really saying. Sometimes if we just would slow down and say, what am I about to say? And that's what philosophy is. Oh, no, I didn't mean that. Let's <laughs> Let's revise. Uh, we don't allow ourselves much room for revision either. No, and of course, there's there's the famous um, study that they did with um, ethnic names on resumes, right? Yes. Submitting the same resumes with with different yes with different names and and finding that there's a lot of implicit bias there, right? You know, there's a lot of people where without reflecting on it, and you know, maybe they don't, you know, they they don't think they're racist, you know, but. You give them two exact resumes with different names, and they're always going to choose the white name, right? You know, yeah. same thing with with male and female. You know, there's always a preference for um. When um, we talked about it, there's a while back where there was a guy that owned a company, and um, he had a female assistant, and uh, she was out for a week, and he was answering her emails, and he realized that like customers were really being nasty with him and like they nothing was going right and what he realized is that they were they thought that he was her yeah <laughs> so the same customers he had dealt yeah. with all along and had had this good relationship with all of a sudden things became exponentially more difficult when he was dealing with them from a woman's perspective you know? mm -hmm. or employers you know the Beauvoir, i mean it was i was working on my second master's degree when she died <laughs> they were, this oh, is not no, a long time no, ago. No, this is not. They were, some people would say it is, but it's not. It's not so I, I can't help but think about these things that, that are concurrent with my lifespan and, and, and things that are happening right now. So a, a, a political representatives who will who will say that it should be a law that in an interview, women have to reveal whether or not they intend to be pregnant before they go to work for a place. You can choose about whether or not to hire somebody. To perform me ripping her hair on, probably taking the guy out too, uh, <laughs> who, who says these kind of things. Why? What do you think? How dare you? <laughs> get real and get in touch with the world and the complexity of the world and the men and women and men and all the, all the varieties and relationships, all of which can contribute to the growth of a company. And, and so if she wasn't saying that in exactly those ways, obviously much better, but, but we have to think about these. But that's not all she was talking about. She's also talking about ethics. Hmm. And, and, and Sarah didn't go there for a, nearly uh, a long time uh, for a long time she was there first <laughs> so when we want to talk about that you can tell me but i think we need to go there yeah yeah absolutely um so i had a question in here that was it was basically just a, a leading question <laughs> I, I said uh, as we discovered there's there's a lot of overlap between the two but is de beauvoir considered a philosopher or a writer by trade <laughs> as we've discovered through the course of this conversation she was definitely a philosopher but 
I guess so we'll take it a different direction. She didn't consider herself a philosopher. She considered herself a writer. Yes. And she was so and she also had these viewpoints, you know, she was very adamant about saying that um her thoughts were really sarts. She was just sort of exposing his thoughts to the world and and that um you know, and and she didn't align. She did not align herself with, with feminists until very late in life. Yeah. Why do you think it was that she took some of these stances. I've wondered about this with that on the on the point of the first, uh, the often deferring to self-deprecatingly deferring to sorry. I, I can't help but think that part of that was a cloak. Part of it was was demonstrating with tongue in cheek with a very dry humor. Uh, you see, I'm just deferring to the man. <laughs> then he can take responsibility for. It. I I don't think she, I, I don't think she she believed that as much as people would like to say. But I also think that I, that that shows some influence of how one has grown up too, and the society in which one lives. And she was pushing the envelope in all kinds of ways, and that puts you way out on the the margin. There's no going back. Once you are out on the margin, there's no going back. And so, if you have an ally, <laughs> yeah, I was about to say I don't I don't know enough about her to to be able to answer this. I, I couldn't but, answer it definitively. <laughs> but you know what I what I would wonder is if do you think maybe part of it was do you think that her she was saying attributing her thoughts to Sartre because she might have thought that it, they'd be better received if they were coming from a man. It's possible. I, I, I certainly think it's possible, especially in the remember I mean, because they were their World War Two in the midst of it in France was when their ideas were really coming into bloom uh, and went way beyond that time. But and this is a person that you and I were talking before. Here's a person who saw herself wanted to teach. And to write, and she, she was the youngest, as we said, the youngest formalized, uh, sanctioned teacher of philosophy in France in her time, at age twenty-one. So, I think that there's just part of the ambiguity. She talked a lot about ambiguity. Uh, the ethics of ambiguity was the title of one of her books, and. And so I think it's an acknowledgement that we are ambiguous in our relationships. We are ambiguous in, in the way we construct ourselves uh, in the messy business of constructing ourselves in the context of, of those around us. So I, I think there's a lot of that going on, too, and there probably some protective coloration. I, I, I wouldn't. Why would that be surprising? So she she. she she was she was removed from teaching twice in the space of two years. The first time by the Nazis. <laughs> I think that's a badge of honor. Uh, <laughs> and then got back, was able to get back to teaching, and then was removed because. And this is as I, you and I were talking about before the show. This to me is so pointedly uh, the regressive nature of our own time period, because one parent complained to her administration, that she was corrupting their essentially adult child. And so she lost her teaching position. Now we have people whose teaching positions are, are under threat because they expect people to wear masks and governors don't want them to, or because they are actually acknowledging that this, the, the, the complexity of a human being with words and scaring people. So I, I think that, that de Beauvoir, way out there on the edge for her time, has all the badges of honor having lived through the, the consequences of saying things that uh, seemed to her, her true and, and authentic. Yeah, and it, it really does come back to the, the gender-sex distinction, right? Because I think that um, – We've, I think we've talked about on the show, maybe it was off the air, we've talked about how um, the myth of the alpha male, right? Mm -hmm. And how really you can, 
you can be an alpha male in certain situations, but in others, you're you're not going to be right. You could be you would be real strong, real tough, but it, you're, there's going to be other points in your life where you're you are not the leader. Mm-hmm. Well, gender sex distinction is really just highlighting that, right? We can all if the the more against the grain you go with society the greater the consequences and the slimmer the chances of um success in the terms of being able to make a change or being able to you know impact you know things in a positive way so like you were saying you know the, the things that she was standing for at the time she was standing for them you know she, any day she could she could lose her job you know she could hit, there was there was vast consequences for them yes um like if i you know it is the same thing if you want to enter into gendered roles right if you want to be a woman special forces soldier right you're going to expose yourself to a very high probability of sexual assault yeah of which of course should not exist but which belies the very nature of, of the, the 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 lies that are sometimes told oh we well, no we treat everyone equally no you don't <laughs> yeah no there's no statistics to back that up or any gendered role right if you're going against the gendered role um you know you're you're going to be a prime target for people assuming and insinuating your sexuality regardless of what it actually is right mm-hmm. if i wanted to become a home decorator People would automatically say I was I was gay, right? Yeah. Regardless of what I was actually doing or whether or not it was any of their business, I, you know. Yeah, the so, preconceived notions. Yeah. So there, there's these these consequences for for doing these sort of things. So I think, like you said, if she was attributing her thoughts to Sartre in a form of protection, I don't think it really takes away from the thoughts themselves or is any sort of. Um, you know, denigrating factor in, in how she should be no, perceived. No, no, I, I think to, to the point that you just made, one of the things she said in the ethics of ambiguity, uh, as long as there have been men and they have lived, they have all felt this tragic ambiguity of their condition, which is really what you were describing in, in a number of ways here. But as long as there have been philosophers and they have thought, most of them, the men, have tried to mask it. Hmm. I'm always going to be tough. I have to be tough and stoic, and, and I just have to be, no matter what. Yeah, that works in an Avengers movie until Thor cries. And this also from the same book, but which is so applicable now. A freedom which is interested only in denying freedom must be denied. And it is not true that the recognition of the freedom of others limits my own freedom. To be free is not to have the power to do anything you like. It is to be able to surpass the given, the given circumstances, toward an open future. The existence of others as a freedom defines my situation and is even the condition of my own freedom. I am oppressed if I am thrown into prison, but not if I am kept from throwing my neighbor into prison. Yeah. Now, Sartre didn't say things like that. Right. Yeah. And, and this is like what I was saying in the intro where, um, you know, there tend, there's a trend towards um, thinking of things abstractly or, or theoretically by philosophers. But she was right into putting things in the time period and On the putting them, yeah. in, in, you know, within, within personal experience as well. Yeah. And, um, yeah, you know, we've... In, We've talked about about that as well. You know, she's she's saying how, you know, freedom and 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 those sorts of things. And I had something I was going to say, and I forget what it was. <laughs> but I'm going to okay. So I'm going to I'm going to cast this other thing because you and I often talk about art, mm. and and this again from the same the same book. And I think is she wrote I I should like to be the landscape which I am contemplating. Hmm. Now, you know, you and I like to make art and we're looking at this. I should like this sky, this quiet water, to think themselves within me, that it might be I whom they express in flesh and bone, and I remain at a distance. But it is also by this distance I remain at that the sky and the water exist before me. My contemplation 
is an excruciation only because it is also a joy. <laughs> the, the, the angst again, the, the anxiety of realizing the world exists. I am defining myself through the world, wanting the world to be part uh, through me. I cannot appropriate the snowfield where I slide. It remains foreign, forbidden, but I take delight in this very effort toward an impossible possession. I experience it as a triumph, not as a defeat, in attempting to find out who I am because of the landscape in which I put myself. Yeah, yeah, and this kind of comes back to what Sartre was saying when we covered yet last week about how, you know, emotions, he's saying emotions are, are a choice, right? Because basically what you're doing when you're expressing um, emotions is you're trying to bend reality to be something that you want it to be. Mm -hmm. You know, he said, I, I can't remember the, the quote exactly, but he said something about, you know, throwing a tantrum is just trying to say that, you know, the world is a certain way that it, it's not, yes. you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's, that is particularly relevant to um, gender and sexuality, right? Like we were just talking about the alpha male thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I've been in situations and I've, I've told you some of the stories where I have physically taken down guys much bigger than me. Right. And so it'd be very easy to me to look at those isolated incidents in my life and say, well, I'm a tough, strong man. Right. <laughs> yes. But the fact of the matter is I've also been pinned to the ground and punched in the face several times, you know, and there's, and within a fight, you're only millimeters away from taking a wrong punch from somebody and being knocked out, no matter who threw it, right? Mm -hmm. It's There's this high element of chance. There's this high element of these different things are going on. And so in that own way, in its own way, being tough or thinking of yourself as tough is sort of an existential crisis in itself. We like to look at these characters and think of them as being in a static state of toughness or supreme skill. But any real soldier would tell you that you're a stray bullet away from being a corpse, right? You know? Yeah. yeah and yeah. so that's just one example that, and you know, that's the hyper masculine example. But it's the, ambi but it's, it's the ambiguity. Right. What right. you're expressing is, is what she was saying that, that, that to, for her to be authentic means you have to come to terms with the ambiguity of your moment to moment daily life and, and, and not think of yourself as a static thing, but realize that there are elements within you that are this and that and both and and if you don't realize it and you don't accept it and you don't think about why then you're going to fall into this uh, false image of yourself right and there's the that false image in the hyper masculine paradigm there is a meme in 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 society um i love them it's it's the uh, fragile masculinity yeah. right and so i saw a good one the other day where it was it was a picture of a um, a restaurant, some guy come in and punched a hole in the wall in the bathroom. So they framed it and said, and labeled it hyper-masculinity, right? <laughs> That's what happens. You know, if you, if you constantly think of yourself as, as the tough alpha male, right? Mm -hmm. There's going to come a time when you're not. And then how are you going to react to that, right? Are you going to reflect on it and realize that life's more complicated than being one static thing? Or are you going to punch a wall? <laughs> you <know? laughs> you're going to do that sort of thing. So... <laughs> So some of de Beauvoir's writing was a casualty of translation. And this is kind of what we've been uh, talking about a yeah, little bit, right? Yeah, As yeah. this, con how we conceive of thought through language. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I, I, I can talk about it from immediately, the personal uh, experience. While, while I, I am enjoying working with Duolingo lingo on a, on a, you know, online, that's not a product placement, it's just the one I chose to use. Uh, and I'm learning basic grammatical things because I'm a, an English teacher anyway, so that sort of works for me. Uh, I am I am not able yet to read much more than a couple of sentences in Italian or French or, or Latin. And I want to be able to be, but I'm painfully aware, have been uh, since, you know, really undergraduate years when my teachers would point this out that I'm still not experiencing de Beauvoir or Sartre or Heidegger or whomever because I'm not reading it in the edition that they wrote in the original language as it were 
And so just to start out, that's a distancing. Now, I trust the translators. Most the publishers aren't going to be publishing the things. She said this, and she didn't say that at all. But there's going to be debate about the nuances and the subbleties. Um, think of, of something in English. Like sometimes people will say, well, I just went far afield of the topic I was just talking about. Well, far afield is a marvelous metaphor implied. And you try to translate it, that into Japanese or you try to translate it, that into French. <laughs> and perhaps you can get a rudimentary literalization of it that will sound very clunky because, yeah. uh, and so we, we miss the subtlety of the thought of an individual when we can't read it in the original. Yeah. And again, pop culture references, right? One, one of my favorite things to read is when, um, people will take a song, like a song lyrics, they'll translate it into a different language, then back into English on Google translate. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, the funniest one, one that has me rolling laughing is Smash Mouth's All-Star, translated into Aramaic, I think, and then back into English. I'll, when we're done podcasting, <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. But, okay. um, but yeah, so, and but in De, in De Beauvoir's case, she almost, it almost was that case where she, for the second sex, um, the translator wasn't a very familiar French uh, right, speaker. Right. And um they had, you know, they were begging to have it retranslated and to have it redone. Mm. And um it was refused for a long time, you know. And I don't know the the particulars of it or the specifics how how different it was or what kind of impact it had, but you have to imagine that the thoughts being conveyed with how important language is to philosophy there was probably a lot that was being lost yeah, from yeah, for readers. And, and part of that is, is because of the abstraction. Uh, abstraction is notoriously difficult in translation because it requires a sense of poetry <laughs> uh, and metaphor and, and fluidity of, of, of style. And you're trying to, and then the tra trouble in translation is you're, of course, trying to, if you're being sensitive to things, you are working at trying to, not parrot, but but with authentic intent and accuracy, represent the style of that writer. Hmm. You know, all I have to do is think of something like uh, No Fear Shakespeare. These books that are out, and I, I I have a mixed feeling about all of them. So, so to be or not to be, and the, and the No Fear Shakespeare is. Listen, either stay alive, alive or die. All right. And while that may be a, a literalization that captures it, it certainly doesn't capture the, the deeper psychological, spiritual implication of, of that. So we can translate, but that doesn't mean we capture it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the Bible is a good example too, right? You look at Absolutely. Old King James versus, you know, they, there's a million translations and you start reading them all and you're like, well, I almost feel like the thought behind this is different in different translations, you know? So, yeah, translation, we take it for granted, especially as English speakers in America. You know, we just assume when we're reading something, we're understanding yeah. the way it was written. And there's a lot behind it that um, we might be missing. <laughs> Another funny example I'll leave off on is um, I was reading an article this week about um, – the one euro houses in, in Italy, you know, Italy is in a bad economic way and, and, and population wide way. So they're, they're offering houses in, in kind of quaint villages for, for one euro or for, you know, deeply discounted rates. And, uh, there's a guy who was being interviewed who had bought three of these houses in one town. And, um, he was saying how, you know, everything's great, but language is still a barrier. And he had gone to a restaurant and he tried to order anise flavored liquor and he got a pineapple. <laughs> so it just goes to show you, you know, something might be very similar in a language and you might end up with something with a completely different um, mm -hmm. outcome. So mm -hmm. that's something to keep in mind and something that, that affected uh, De Beauvoir in, in her day. Sure. Um, so let's talk about to what extent do you believe Sartre and De Beauvoir influenced each other? Oh, I think it's inarguable to the, I think to a deep extent. If you're, 
if if you're in a, a, a essentially a, a a relationship with someone from let's say uh, age twenty five to seventy five. This is roughly so fifty years, <laughs> and you're still enjoying each other's company, and you were still talking, and you were reading each other's work, and you were conversing, and and in their case, they 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 started a journal with some of their other philosophies, uh, the uh, philosophers at the time, uh, Le Temps Moderne, the the modern times. Hmm. It was a fascinating journal. If in translation, <laughs> so all, all the more so, you know, and, and so I've seen little bits of this, but I haven't been able to, you know, read all of them. And and they're debating, they're taking an idea and they're pushing it with each other. So they they influenced each other mightily. I, I think that it would. I don't think one can figure out the genetic code, so to speak, of of one's writing where it necessarily well there's the barrier where it entirely leaves off and the other one i don't i don't know how you do that mm -hmm. and scholars are trying to do that yeah. they're trying to look at it right now and we'll yeah. say well this one is more yeah. more sart like and then that sort of thing but i think that's something that's kind of telling about it is um you know that organization that that they were a part of um they bouvard kind of led it and she actually sort of had to pry sart's um, contributions out of it mm -hmm. to an extent, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that says something there. And, you know, like you said, without being able to, to know, you know, who wrote what and who did what you can, you can see the back and forth in, in the thoughts, you know? And, uh, it's kind of, kind of interesting that way. Yeah. Um, what, what do you think feminism would look like today without her contributions? Well, I think eventually others would have been talking about gender. I think that's uh, unavoidable. Um, the fact that she uh, lobbed it in there wonderfully in a uh, the post World War II context was uh, significant because you have a, a, a world in 1949 where everybody. Which is the human thing, right? We always just get back to normal. We always want to get back to normal. So we know what that means, as if normalcy is a thing, as if it's a good thing, uh, and we pretend all of these things. And here she and she lobbed this in at precisely the time when you know, women in some like the United States. Well, some were going back to being at home, some not. <laughs> Rosie the Riveter was out there. Um, uh, but then you have, in the, again, in the United States, this is an example of the Mac McCarthy who was around the corner, starting to probe at people. Are you communists? We're going to get all of you. We're going to call you communists. We're going to label you. Now we have people labeling people as, oh, they're communists or they're socialists, which are not the same thing. <laughs> but let's just lump them all together because who knows anyway because nobody reads. So... <laughs> Okay, that's an easy thing to do, but into that mix, into that world, into a Europe that's trying to repair itself, in, into trying to figure out what to do with Germany, and Germany trying to figure out its own rethinking of self. It's like all these things that the existentialists are talking about were happening on national and international scale. And then comes this idea. It's time to think about this, people. And so uh, I think that we would have arrived at it in some way, but I, and probably it with, with marvelous style, but not to full far because we were each an individual. It, it was time because she decided it was time. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes you wonder, you know, looking at the historical context. Um, if it didn't happen, then when would it have happened, right? Because you're absolutely right. Like World War II shook up the whole world um, in that way where you had all the men going off to war and, and almost so, all of the women having to take up the rest of the economy in order to support it. While you know? clusters of women, even in World War II, were in war, you're right? right? There was, uh, But yeah, you had that. And then you had that snapback thing where people of color fighting – 
in war, but let's go back to the United States and you can still be lynched. You still can't be in the same water fountain with somebody else. And, and this was not lost on philosophers. This was not lost on anybody who was wide awake. How can you, how can you say we're, we're out here bringing freedom to the world, but now we're going to go back and just take it all away? Uh, that's so inconsistent. It's mind-bogglingly embarrassing and tragic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it's funny that, you know, you look at history and you see these people who who take these stands and end up changing it. And it seems almost like a, a foregone conclusion. Like, you look at the context, you say, well, how could they have gone back to what they were doing before? You know, it, it, it's almost... The ethics of ambiguity again. Regardless of the staggering dimensions of the world about us, the density of our ignorance, <laughs> I love her, the risks of catastrophes to come, and our individual weakness within the immense collectivity in which we live, the fact remains that we are absolutely free today if we choose to will our existence in its finiteness, a finiteness which is open on the infinite. And in fact, any man who has known real loves, real revolts, real desires, and real will knows quite well that he has no need of any outside guarantee to be sure of his goals. Hmm. Their certitude comes from his own drive. See, this is part of what she was talking about was the idea of, ha of having projects, which you might not ever be able to fulfill or come to fruition. Well, let, then we think to, to Sartre in the idea that what you do now <laughs> matters, no matter, you, you come in, you do things, you don't know what's going to happen with those things, you don't, and say, right, the project of itself, it, if it is of something which is toward the, the collective good or the good of developing self in relationship to how you see yourself with others, is what matters. Not whether it gets finished, <laughs> not whether there are 15 sequels, <laughs> it, the thing in itself. Yeah, and I think, that, you know, that's that sort of encapsulates existentialism in a way, right? Mm -hmm. Is because we live um, in a world where the finished products are, are what are considered things of value. But from a psychological introspection or a social psychological view, um, you never finish all of your projects, and you could almost say that you almost never finish one project. You, you know, you could I, almost say that I can finish a song or, or a painting, but like you and I are talking about, I'm always looking at that, thinking I could make that better if I did something else. Mm -hmm. But would it make it worse? What would it? But it lives inside your head, right? It does. And those projects that continue to live inside your head, um, that unfinishedness. That's sort of the existential dilemma in a way. You're, you're teaching yourself. You're engaging. You're, it's, this is what I, why we're doing this. You, you've indulged, but you're, you're as interested in this as I am. Existentialism is very much alive and has no reason not to be under, under those circumstances that we're talking about. If you can't wrestle with your own ignorance, and I am an ignorant man about many things, if we can't wrestle with that, if we can't admit with due humility, God, I don't know everything, but I can take things in, I can consider them, I can consider who I am and what it is that I am to be in this world with the people in which I live. There's not going to be an end to it until we die. And we die and there's still not an end to it because we have no idea if it ripples or not. <laughs> it really doesn't matter as far as from the viewpoint of we're gone. Uh, so to be able to say what I'm doing matters because it matters to my own self-development. Because if I run around all the time saying, I'm great, we're the greatest, I'm great, well, everybody's great, we can't be better. Then all you're doing is uh, you, you, you might as well stop. All you're doing is making, casting yourself into the prison of uh, self-perceived and deluded greatness. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was a really good discussion. Um, so I think we have one more right yeah. in our existential. Uh, yeah, at least for now. Yeah, yeah, next week. I'm sure we'll come back to yeah. to several of them throughout time. But uh, until next time, keep pondering.